Good morning. It's great to see you this morning. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors and I want to welcome those of you who've been away and are back, uh, back into the area, back to Christ Central. And if this is your first time, just want to say a, a special welcome to you this morning as well. And we're jumping back into our series. I had to take my sweater off. Like I'm getting a lot. I see some people waving. Uh, who thought we were going to have 60 degree weather uh, today? So thankful that it's a beautiful day outside, but I had to shed my sweater. Um, so we're jumping back into our series this morning in the New Testament letter of Ephesians. Uh, and our title for this series is Who Are We? Because Paul is writing to communicate and to affirm the newfound identity of the Christians in Ephesus, their identity corporately and their identity individually. I was meeting with Justin Collins a few weeks ago. Justin's a member of our church. He's a pastoral intern here as well. And he made an offhand comment that I thought was extremely insightful. He said, Ephesians is set up a little bit like the Ten Commandments. Uh, now, most of you have heard the Ten Commandments. Uh, you've read them, heard them, even if you haven't grown up in the church. All right, here, here are some of the commandments. You shall have no gods before me. You shall not make any graven image. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, just to name a few. And a huge, and I mean huge, piece of the Ten Commandments uh, that many of us don't hear, we didn't grow up hearing, is the preamble the preamble of the Ten Commandments. A preamble is the introduction that lays a foundation. So here is the preamble of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the foundation of God's relationship with His people, and as a result of that foundation, the people of God then were to live in accordance to the commands of God. The foundation, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. His redemption out of the house of slavery. He has set his people free. Therefore, the people of God in the Old Testament were to walk in the light of who they were. A lot of people think the Old Testament is all law and no grace. That is far from the truth. Ephesians is structured similarly, and it's done very purposefully by the author Paul. For three chapters, if you've been with us, Paul has been writing the preamble, if you will. Writing about who God is and what God has done. Uh, what God has done, His grace, His love that are eternal and freely offered, and that God is redeeming a unified people. He's putting His redemption program on display through this institution that we call the church. The unified church is where God is showing the world what God is all about. Therefore, the people of God have been set free to walk in this newfound identity. And Ephesians chapters 4 through 6 has bucket loads of commands that detail what our lives should look like as Christians. But if you separate these commands from chapters 1 through 3, you don't have Christianity anymore. You have moralism and legalism. And some of you will be tempted to define your Christianity by chapters 4 through 6. And I want to tell you that if you do, you'll be on a straight path to burnout and to moralism. Paul lays before us in our passage this morning two paths that we can walk. The path of the world or the path of the church. The path of the non-Christian or the path of the Christian. The path of those against God or the path of those who are children of God. And if you're a Christian this morning, Paul is telling us there should be a distinctiveness about the way we live. And so I'm going to ask you to stand as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, 
verses 17 through chapter 5, verse 2. I'm going to read God's Word to us this morning. This is His Word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Uh, let's pray. God, I ask that you would speak to us this morning. The word of God, we believe, is living and active sharper than any double-edged sword, and we ask right now for you to pierce our hearts, for you to penetrate our thoughts, to, to change us, Lord, the way we think, the way we feel, and the way that we act. Would we be different because you've spoken to us? Would you remove me? And, and Jesus, would you be exalted? Uh, we pray that, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you and that you would give us ears to hear. You speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You can have a seat. Well, back in the 1980s, there was a song that I grew up hearing on the radio all the time. Uh, it was a song by the Bangles. Not the Beatles, but the Bangles. Uh, not sure they had any more hit songs after this one song, but it was the song, Walk Like an Egyptian. Anybody remember that song, Walk Like an Egyptian? Uh, yeah, I, I grew up hearing that song, and the song was riffing on people who look like they walk around a certain way. There was a distinctiveness about their walk. Now, for some of you who may not remember the 1980s, not maybe born in the 1980s, how about the 2006 hit song, I think I'm pronouncing this person's name right, uh, Unk, U-N-K. Now walk it out, now walk it out. <laughs> Y'all know that song, right? Walk it out. Don't think about all the other lyrics, but it, <laughs> walk it out. It was a call to own who you are. And just walk it out, right? Live it out. In our passage this morning, we are being exhorted, if you are a Christian, walk it out. Live it out. Walk like a Christian. Walking is the main metaphor Paul uses to describe the Christian life. It wasn't long ago that our son Henry learned to walk. At first he crawled, and then 
uh, he started holding on to something. He would stand up, and then he took a step and would fall. Then he took two steps and fall to now where he walks around with ease, and he wakes up in the morning, and he says, Dad, Dad, walk. Playroom, walk. <laughs> he commands me now to walk and to follow him. And Paul is telling us, Christian, walk. Walk as a Christian. And in order to walk like a child of God, we need to know three things. And this is taken uh, from Sinclair Ferguson. We need to know what we were, what we are, and what we're called to be. What we were, what we are, what we're called to be. So let's look first at what we were. Verses 17 to 18. It says, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to hardness of heart. Now, I want to I start by saying that this description was true for everyone here this morning at some point. Everybody here was a Gentile, in Paul's words. Everybody here at one point was apart and separated from God, which should produce in all of us a deep humility. If you are a Christian it's not because you are morally or intellectually superior. It is because God has been gracious to you. Our text says that life outside of Christ is marked by a futility of thinking. That life seems pointless. That there is no fulfillment. That this person is alienated from the life of God. That they're not living in the fullness of how God created them to be. And the interesting thing about this pathway is that the futile thinking and darkness is due to the hardness of heart. It's due to a hardness of heart. Catch, catch this. Intellectual futility is not rooted in the hiddenness of God's truth, but in the hardness of the human heart. In other words, unbelief is not an intellectual, an intellectual matter, but rather a moral and spiritual matter. When someone professes to be an unbeliever, and that may be you this morning, and we are really glad you're here and you're with us, but what Paul is saying is that through all intellectualizing, there is simply a will that doesn't like this God. One author wrote this, In the end, intellectual rejection of God is a mode of the human's heart to attempt to keep God at a convenient distance. Now, I say this with acknowledgement. There, there are many people here this morning that are much smarter than me, who are brilliant and highly intelligent people. And there are people, who, not just here, but outside of this church, who have thought a lot about the world's issues and have thought about who God says He is even in the Bible and have still rejected God. Amen. And there are people who are way more moral than me, do a lot more good than I do, and still reject God. But let's be honest, every person, every person has certain assumptions or presuppositions or foundations. And not all of these things can be proven by observation. There are things that every person is committed to, count on, or in religious terms, have faith in. Every person has heart commitments. Every person has an absolute authority or foundation upon which they live their life. And it is out of these heart commitments that a person reasons or thinks. What Paul is saying is that if you are predisposed to not like the God as he is revealed in the Bible, then this will greatly affect how you reason and think. So the big question 
that has to be answered is, why do you not like this God? Why is your heart committed against this God? Dr. Bart Ehrman, who is the chair of religion at UNC Chapel Hill, brilliant, much smarter than I am. Uh, He grew up in a Christian home, studied at Princeton Seminary, and while in seminary, started asking critical questions about the Bible. And around 15 years ago, he finally arrived to a place where he now rejects the God of the Bible. And he will share this, that the thing that caused him to reject the God of the Bible was not his critical questions about the authority and relevance of the Bible, but it was this, suffering and evil and pain that exist in our world. Why God would allow evil and pain drove him to not like God. Now, understanding what I'm saying right now doesn't mean that we discount intellectual questions at all. But it will help us address the core and deeper issues which are our heart's commitments. So again, the big question that has to be answered, why do you not like this God? What, What is your heart committed to against this God? The progression from a futile mind due to a hard heart is verse 19. It says they've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. As a person makes many heart commitments to live life with a thinking that is opposed to God, the heart becomes callous, given over to sensuality and impurity. This is a picture of addiction. And notice it just doesn't happen. All of a sudden, it's one step, then it's another step, and then over time, the heart becomes callous, deadened. There's a man at a church who started attending regularly, was getting involved, even leading in some capacities, and it finally came out that he was having an affair with a younger woman. He'd been married for years, and the pastor met with this man, and, and the man said this, Pastor, I have to tell you, I've never felt more alive as I do in this relationship with this young woman. I felt bored for so many years, and now I'm alive. And the pastor looked at the man and said, I have no doubt that you feel more testosterone. I have no doubt you feel more excitement. But you're not more alive. Your numerous choices over the past few months have led your heart to be hardened and calloused. You're not living the way you were created to live. The commitments of the heart will lead to the way that we think and therefore the way that we live. This is what we were if we were a Christian. This was our past. I want us to look next at what we now are, uh, what we've become. Look at verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, Paul says emphatically. This is not the way you learned Christ. This is not the path you are to walk. In the original Greek, uh, you did not use the verb learn with a person. You, lo- you used it connected to a subject, like you learn math or you learn the news. But Paul does something new grammatically here with the Greek, and he says, you learned Christ. And this is more than just learning about Christ. It's learning the person. This is extremely relational language. Maybe you've heard a Christian ask another Christian, or maybe you've asked this, how's your walk? How's your walk? This is where it comes from. How's your walk? Meaning, how are you doing in your relationship with God? Do you feel close? Do you feel distant? Are you spending time with God in prayer and in His Word and worship or in silence? How is your walk? Are you learning Christ? 
Remember, Paul's favorite description of the Christian is in Christ. That's, the, that's his favorite way of describing the Christian, in Christ. It's the imagery of union or marriage, becoming one with Christ. I don't know just facts about my wife. I grow in knowing her. We eat dinners together. We share our days. We share our frustrations, our hopes, our fears, and my learning her grows every day. When someone asks, how are you and Rachel doing? I don't just start spouting off things about her. I describe how we're doing in our intimacy, our love for one another, how it's affecting the way that we act toward each other. And this is key because the path that we're to walk as Christians is not just behavioral change. It's a deep heart change through being in union with Christ, walking with Him, learning Christ that will impact the way we behave and act. And as we walk down this path, there is a left and right step. There's a left step and a right step. Left foot, put off the old self. Right foot, put on the new self. Put off the old, put on the new. It's what Puritans called mortification and vivification. Mortification, put to death the old man, the old patterns, the old habits. And vivification, put on the new life, the new man, the new patterns. Now, it should be somewhat encouraging to us that Paul exhorts the Christians in Ephesus to put off the old man. Because that means the old man or the old me still lives within all of us. Which means our struggle that we have day to day and week to week is not unique to us. We all struggle together. Right? The thinking that life apart from God is better, that our heart's commitment to self over God can come creeping in to every single person here. So we put off. We repent, thinking of, dreaming of, and even acting in the path of our old life. Putting off this old self is a step that we must take. On July 30th, 1945, the uh, heavy cruiser, the USS Indianapolis, was heading home across the Pacific Ocean, having delivered a cargo that uh, was full of enriched uranium that was used and instrumental uh, to the ending of World War II. And when the USS Indianapolis was coming home, a Japanese torpedo struck it and ended its journey. And in the first 12 minutes, 300 men died. More than 900 men, some extremely wounded, ended up in the salt water without fresh water to drink and without shelter from the sun and with no protection from the sharks. And of the 900, only 316 survived the four days and five nights in the ocean. 316. Captain Lewis Haynes, one of the chief medical officers, was one of the survivors and reported this. When the hot sun came out, and we were in the crystal clear water. You were so thirsty, you couldn't believe it wasn't good enough to drink. I had a hard time convincing the men that they shouldn't drink. The real young ones, you take away their hope, you take away their water and their food, they would drink the salt water and would die fast. There were also mass hallucinations. It was amazing how everyone would see the same thing. So Paul is warning us of in this passage is that sin looks enticing. It can look clear and innocent. But once giving in to sin, it not only fails to satisfy, but it makes us desire more and more what actually poisons us. And it deadens our senses to what is good. We were made for what the Scriptures call living water. 
the truth and life that are in Christ Jesus. We were made for new life. So we put off the old. We repent. And we put on the new self, this new life. And this new life comes through the renewal of the mind by faith. Believing that God created us to be in His likeness and true righteousness and holiness. And that's Genesis 1 language. You read Genesis. This is creation language. New creation. We are no longer defined by the old self, but by the new creation. So by faith, we are being recreated into the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. We are now defined by Christ. His righteousness, His holiness. We are in Him. We are part of a, of a new creation. A whole new world, world order that Christ is ushering in. This is who we are. We are in Christ. Two years ago, there was the snowpocalypse in Atlanta, Georgia, and Birmingham. If you remember that, it kind of just shut both cities down. They weren't ready for it. And, uh, and people were stuck in the snow on, on highways for, and interstates for days. Their cars ran out of gas, and the cities just they weren't prepared. There was a doctor in Birmingham uh, who was at a hospital when the snow started to fall, was doing a surgery. And one of his other patients was rushed to a different hospital with major complications. And he finished up his first surgery and got the news that this other patient was at this hospital over seven miles away. There was no way to get to the hospital because of the snow, and this patient was in need of surgery. So the doctor puts on his shoes, puts on his jacket, and walks over five hours in the snowpocalypse. At one point, stumbling and tumbling down a hill to where he finally arrives at the hospital, preps for surgery, completes a very long surgery. And afterwards, the doctor was asked, why in the world did you go through all the trouble to get to the hospital and do this surgery? And his response was, because I'm a doctor and saving lives is what I do. That's what I do. Christian, you are in Christ. A new creation. This is who you are, walking in righteousness and holiness. It's what we do. And this is not a living that secures God's grace. Please hear that. But it's a living out of the grace that has secured us. And so we put off and we put on. Amen. We put off and we put on. We've seen what we were. We've seen what we are. Lastly, I want us to see what we are now becoming. Uh, if we are in Christ, we are to live differently. Our lives are, be, are to be distinct. And in verses 25 to 32, Paul lays out exhortations of how our lives are to be different than the world. Look at, look at these verses. Paul sets up a, a, a negative, positive pattern. The negative and then the positive. And it's an amazing list that really a sermon could be preached on each one of these. So I'm going to quickly go through these. But look at the first one. And just a heads up, these are convicting. <laughs> first one, falsehood is replaced with truth. Isn't it interesting that Paul's first instinct is to go to what we say to each other and how we present ourselves to each other. Our words and our honesty is where we will see if we're being transformed or not. What kind of words come out of your mouth? Do you promote yourself or present yourself in a way that's just not true? If falsehood can be lies, it can be cheating, it can be embellishing, it can be hypocrisy. And the truth is that the bedrock of relationships and the truth of 
how we interact with one another are the wills that the church must turn on if we want to radiate God's glory to the world. We must be honest and we must be truthful with what we say and how we present ourselves. Amen. Second thing Paul writes is that anger is replaced by control. Paul says that we can be angry and not sin. Right, Justin mentioned this in his sermon a couple months ago. We can be angry and not sin. There's a righteous anger. There's an anger at injustice. There's anger over sin. But the type of anger that Paul is talking about is an anger that controls a person, which can be seen in outburst of anger or quietly simmering anger. Notice Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Let me give you a, a side note. Many marriage counselors will tell you to not go to bed while in an argument. This passage does not say, do not let the sun go down on disputes and come to an agreement before you sleep. See, sometimes continuing to argue late into the night is the worst thing you can do. You just need to have a good night's sleep and wake up and then talk about the dispute. But it does say, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let anger control you. And some key indicators that you're being controlled by anger is the length of your anger and how vigorously you might express your anger. Let's look at the, the third thing Paul lists here. Theft is replaced by liberality. It's interesting again that the next thing Paul describes as a life that's transformed is how you handle your possessions. Theft can be sneaky. It's not just you know, breaking in somewhere and stealing something. Theft is sneaky. How do you treat your expense account at work? If you own your own business, how do you handle the tax breaks you get? If you're in need and people give money to you, do you use it on what people gave you the money for? Instead, Paul says, we're to work. We're to work. We're to earn money for the purpose of sharing with others to give it away and to help others. Amen. This, com this is true for any class, upper, middle, lower, doesn't matter. We are to work, to give, and to be a blessing. Here's the fourth thing. Corrupting talk is replaced by blessing talk. Corrupting talk replaced by blessing. Another speaking <laughs> exhortation. And corrupting talk is talk that tears people down. It can be cursing. It can be the way you talk about other people. It can be the way you're defensive about yourself, and instead, we're to use our words to encourage others, to build others up. So when was the last time you used your words to make a person's day? For me, <laughs> who is guilty, and for most, I guarantee it's been a long time. Here's the fifth thing. Animosity is replaced by kindness. Animosity replaced by kindness. The word bitterness here is helpful. We all know how noticeable a bitter taste is in our mouths, don't we? Amen. It's just as noticeable in your soul. You just don't deal with it and you act like people can't taste it in you. But they can. And when it shows up, though, Paul is telling us to find out the kind way instead. And how are we to be kind instead of bitter? By drawing on the joy that is found in how much Christ has forgiven us. Verse 32. By finding the joy that is found in how much Christ has forgiven us and then how much Christ loves us 
by sacrificing himself for us, chapter 5, verse 2. The grace of Christ to forgive us, the mercy of Christ to die for us, are the motivation for all the things that I've just mentioned. The reason we're to, that, that Timothy and I harp over and over and over on the basic truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the basic truths of God's grace and his love and his forgiveness is without them, we will never be new people. We need to hear them over and over and over. In the new life that Paul describes here, maybe at first sight it seems mundane and and not very spectacular. It It doesn't seem a life of mighty deeds and power, but rather a humble life that's transformed by the Holy Spirit. And I say, yes, that's true. That is exactly what Paul is describing. But it is full of power and full of a life that displays who Christ is Augustine, who was a towering figure in church history, was the bishop in Africa in the 4th century. His testimony speaks to this. Listen to his testimony. He lived most of his life for himself. He dabbled in and out of false cults. He pursued the satisfaction of his desires. He was, in all senses, a sexual addict, even after becoming a Christian. He was eventually brought to faith in Christ in the city of Milan, whose bishop was a very eloquent preacher named Ambrose. And Augustine, recalling on one occasion how he came to faith on the, inf- on the influence of Ambrose, said this to Ambrose, It was not your great teaching. <laughs> That's like a in the face to every preacher, right? <laughs> it was not my teaching. No, not your great teaching, Ambrose. I scarcely expected to find that in the Christian church in any case. But it's that you were kind to me. You were kind. Now I wonder why that impressed Augustine. Perhaps his kindness authenticated Ambrose's preaching. Perhaps it helped Augustine to see and to believe that the God and Savior of such a man as Ambrose must himself be kind. And if God was kind, then perhaps the Savior of Ambrose would be willing to accept even Augustine and pardon his sins and transform his life. Christ Central, may we walk out the Christian life as we learn day by day who he is. And perhaps the same thing that happened to Augustine would happen through us if our lives were different and distinct. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would change us. Change us, O Lord, by your grace and by your power and mercy. Help us to put to death the old and to put on the new. And Lord, for those that of us in here who still struggle with questioning and doubting and our hearts are sometimes committed, maybe never committed, and we're in and out of belief and unbelief, we pray that you would strengthen our faith and help us to see the glorious risen Savior Jesus who forgives and who laid his life down but who now reigns victorious and is in that resurrection power, that new creation that we walk. Help us to walk in that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.